so I love that. I love that whole picture. I love the whole scene, right, of, of, of all the people praising Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem. But as you know, as you know, many uh, hours later, but only a few days, right, about what, four or five days later, another crowd formed in Jerusalem, right? And this crowd, they weren't waving palm branches, were they? They were raising their fists, right? And they were crying out, not Hosanna to the son of David. They were crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Crowds are funny, aren't they? They change so quickly. By the way, if you're a Boston sports fan, you know how that is. We, we love our teams today, and then tomorrow we hate them, right? We're, we, we love them. They're the best players in the world. And the next day, it's like, we need to trade him, get rid of him, run him out of town, right? That's the way we are with our sports fans, with our sports teams. But that's the way crowds are anyway, aren't they? One minute, they're crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. The next minute, the crowd is crying, crucify him. One of the things that we see as we read through the New Testament is that Jesus was no stranger to crowds, was he? And some of the crowds, they loved Jesus. Like the crowd we read about a couple weeks ago in Capernaum, they loved him. And in other crowds, they absolutely hated him, right? They were ready to kill him even. Do you remember the crowd a few weeks ago that we read about in Nazareth? But here's the thing that we need to keep in mind as we, as we think about crowds and we think about even our own propensity to get caught up in the crowd. Because I'm convinced that in these crowds, there were those who loved Jesus, there were those who hated Jesus, and then there were, theirs, there, were there that they didn't even know, but it seemed like awfully good time to wave some palm branches. You know, like, hey, everybody's having a great time. You know, I see it all the time. I've been to concerts. I remember I did a lot of concerts when I was a youth pastor, and, and I remember being in crowds at these concerts when an artist would leave the stage and they would come out into the crowd, right? And then if you're in that crowd, what happens is you start getting pushed around, right? Because everybody is trying to get near to this artist so they can get a high five or a selfie, right? If they can get close enough to the artist. And it's always like puzzled me because the reality is like, I know that at least half these people probably don't even know half the songs that this artist sings, right? But they're caught up in the emotions of the crowd and that's the way that crowds work. But here's the thing that we need to keep in mind. When it comes to being a follower of Jesus, when it comes to being a, a Christian, Jesus isn't looking for people who just follow the crowd. It's not what he's looking for. Jesus is looking for those who not follow the crowd, but those who will follow him. And while it is absolutely a wonderful thing to be one of those who waves a palm branch, I hope you would. I hope that from the depths of your heart that you would wave a prom branch. I hope that when you were singing this morning, it wasn't just raising your hands, but you were raising your heart in praise and worship to Jesus this morning. And while that is a wonderful thing, it's a great thing to do, we have to recognize that Jesus wants more than just the praise of our lips, right? He wants our hearts and he wants our lives as well. Well, this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Luke, we're going to read another amazing story from the life and ministry of Jesus. And this story also begins with a crowd. 
There's a crowd that is pressing in and they're gathering around Jesus. They want to hear him teach. But as we're going to see as we make our way through this story this morning is that this story is really all about Jesus calling uh, his disciples into a deeper relationship with him where they are walking step by step in obedience to his calling and his plan for their lives. Before we begin reading, though, I do want to remind you of something that I mentioned briefly uh, a couple of weeks ago. At this point in Jesus' ministry, as we've been making our way through, through the, the life and ministry of Jesus, at this point, it, Peter, uh, Andrew, uh, James, John, these guys, they are all, they've already begun to follow Jesus. This isn't like the first time that he meets them, right? In both Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1, we read about Jesus inviting these fishermen to come and follow him. And if you read those two accounts, Matthew 4 and Mark chapter 1, and then you read the account that we're going to look at today, you're going to see that there are a lot of similarities between these two stories. So some people think that, no, it's the same story just told now from Luke's perspective. But if you examine those stories, Matthew 4, Mark 1, and then what we're looking at today in Luke 5, what you're going to see is that there are a lot of differences actually between those stories, especially as it pertains to the timing and how it relates to Jesus healing Simon's mother-in-law that we read about last week, which is why most scholars believe that this story took place after Jesus's initial invitation to these disciples to come and follow him. He's coming to them again and inviting them into a deeper relationship. By the way, I've mentioned this before, um, but there is a, a tool on my shelf that I use a lot, and I would highly recommend, if you don't have one, if you're looking to do a deeper study uh, of the Gospels, I highly recommend investing in what's called a Harmony of the Gospels. You can write that down, Harmony of the Gospels. Um, what it does, a Harmony of the Gospels takes all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it places them side by side in a chronological order where the stories that appear in two or more of the Gospels are in columns beside each other, which allows you to see slight differences in the story you know, told from a different, different angle. And then what they do is they, they take the, the stories that are unique to each gospel and they place them where they fit in chronologically. And, and then what this allows you to do is to read the life of Christ, the gospels, in one continuous story. Really great tool. So if you want to do deeper studies on, on the gospels, I highly recommend uh, getting one of those. So, but here's what I want you to keep in mind this morning. So, just keep in mind this morning as we read this story that Peter and these other fishermen, they have already been spending time with Jesus, okay? They are familiar. They have seen him performing miracles. You know, they've seen him casting out demons. They've seen him healing the sick. Uh, they were there when, 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 when Jesus in Capernaum healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law in Simon Peter's house. But what we can derived from this story is that at some point, we don't know how long they've been following Jesus, but at some point they had gone back to fishing, 
They were still fishing to, to make a living, whether that was you know, a full-time thing or maybe it was a part-time when they weren't traveling with Jesus, but they were still fishing. And that's where this story today is going to take place. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're just going to look at the first 11 verses today. Luke 5 verse 1 says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Now, we've been covering this now for a few weeks in our study but word about Jesus was spreading all over the region of Galilee, right? And for obvious reasons. I mean, when someone is performing miracles and teaching with the type of authority that Jesus was teaching, you know, healing people who were sick, it's no surprise that everyone would have been talking about this new teacher in town, right? Wherever you went, people would have been talking about Jesus. And so not surprisingly, the crowds began to follow him wherever he went. It was, it was hard for Jesus just to get alone. We talked about that last time, right? He had to get up early, early in the morning just to get away someplace private where he could pray and spend time with his father. And Luke says that on this particular morning, as he was standing on the shoreline of the lake of Gennesaret, the people were pressing in. Let's talk just briefly about the, the Lake of Gennesaret, or as it's better known, the Sea of Galilee. This lake is actually called by a few different names in the scriptures. Here it's called the, the Lake of Gennesaret, which is referring to a fertile plain that is just south of Capernaum. In the Old Testament, it was called the Sea of Canaret. And then in the book of John, sometimes you see it referred to as the Sea of Tiberias after the city of Tiberias that is on its western shores. Now, because it is called the, the Sea of Galilee, sometimes people assume that it's a saltwater body, right? Because typically seas are, are saltwater. But it's actually a large freshwater lake. It's about 13 miles long, about seven and a, uh, seven and a half miles wide at its widest point, and it's about 150 feet deep at its deepest point. This lake was, at the time of Jesus, and it still is a lake that is, is heavily fished by both amateur and professional fishermen like we're going to see in our story today. I read somewhere this week that, that something like 2,000 tons of fish are, are, are still brought out of the Sea of Galilee every year. They stock this lake. It's a, it's a major source of revenue uh, is the fishing. One other just sort of interesting uh, piece of trivia about the Sea of Galilee. This might show up on, a, on Trivial Pursuit or something. Does that game even still exist? I don't know. It, when I was a kid, that's the trivia game that you played, Trivial Pursuit. But one interesting piece of trivia about the Sea of Galilee is that it is the lowest elevation of any freshwater lake in the world. It's kind of interesting, right? Sometimes we think about the Dead Sea and how that's the lowest point on, on the planet, right? The Dead Sea. But the Sea of Galilee is the lowest freshwater lake uh, on, the, on the face of the earth. 
It is about 700 feet below sea level. So on this particular morning, Simon Peter, along with with James and John, who were fishing companions of his, partners in, in fishing, along with probably his brother Andrew, They are on the shore of of this Sea of Galilee, and Luke tells us that they are washing their nets. They're cleaning up their nets. In other words, they were busy cleaning up after after a night of, of fishing, and they were getting their gear ready for the next night. And as they are there along the shore cleaning up their nets, a large crowd begins to press in towards the shoreline right where these guys are working. And as they look up, and you, you can hear the crowd coming, right? They're there working, and they can hear the crowd coming. And, and, and as they look up, who do they see there in the crowd? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And, and this crowd, this crowd, in an effort to get as close to Jesus as possible, they are backing him up closer and closer to the edge of the water, Right? If they back him any further, he's going to be standing in the water. Can you picture this scene in your mind? Now, I want you to think about something. Think about this. Do you think that it is just a coincidence that Jesus ends up in the exact location where Peter and these other fishermen were cleaning their nets? I mean, come on, right? He could have gone to any part of the lake, right? Gone for a walk and... He lands at the exact location where these guys are washing their nets. In fact, I believe that they are the reason that he's here. They're the reason he's here. I mean, it's like, well, no, he's there because of the crowd. No, he led that crowd to that spot. And these fishermen have no idea what Jesus has in store for them on this day. You do because you've read the story, right? Some of you. Some of you are like, no, what's going to happen? We'll get there. But Luke says, Luke says that the crowd was pressing in on Jesus. And then he says, to hear the words of God. Isn't that a great picture? Isn't that amazing? Men and women crowding in around Jesus, hungry to hear what he has to say. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we read uh, the words of Jesus. Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That was what he had to do. I have to, I have to travel to these other towns. I need to preach the good news. Preaching and teaching God's word, the good news of the gospel, was what it was a, a primary part of Jesus' ministry. And he taught with an authority that was like nothing that these people had ever heard. And so the people were eager to hear what's he gonna teach today? What's he gonna say today? And so they were pressing in to hear him. I just love that, don't you? I hope that's why we gather, right? One of the big reasons we gather is because we want to study God's word. We want to understand what God's word says. I was thinking about something this week. What do you think would happen if, if, if we heard that this afternoon, this afternoon, Jesus was going to come and he was going to preach right up here on Baldwin Hill? Baldwin Hill, Jesus is going to come and he's going to be preaching this message called the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Hill, all right? Jesus is coming and he's going to preach this sermon. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can read it in your Bibles. But Jesus is going to come. He's going to preach that sermon today on Baldwin Hill. Do you think people would show up? 
yeah, right? I, I'd be there. I, I'm assuming most of you would be there. You'd probably invite your friends, say, you got to come and you got to hear this. Jesus is going to be teaching the Sermon on the Mount on Baldwin Hill Road. It's going to be amazing, right? People, I believe, people would be pressing in like we see in this story. I think the crowds would be gathering around to hear what Jesus has to say. But here's the thing. And this is, what, this is what God was really speaking to my heart this week. We literally have that exact same message at our disposal in our Bibles, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can literally read Jesus' words to the crowd on the Sermon on the Mount this afternoon. You can go over, actually, the crowds that were there the first time he preached it, they couldn't go home and read it afterwards because they couldn't write it down fast enough, right? And they didn't have a copy of the New Testament in their hands, right? They had to try to remember the things that Jesus said. You and I have a copy of that sermon in our hands, and how many times are we just like, oh, yeah, I got to do my quiet time. Got to read my Bible today. Check that box, right? What a treasure, what a treasure that we have in our hands. Wouldn't it be amazing if we approached our time in God's word with that type of enthusiasm, just pressing in and saying, I wonder what God is gonna speak to me today. Wow. That's what we have in our hands. Well, this crowd, they are pressing in and they wanna hear Jesus teach. But as you can imagine, with so many people closing in around him and he's backing up, he's already he's got his heels are dipping into the water, right? And the people are like right in his face. It's hard to speak to an entire crowd when the people are literally six inches in front of you, right? It's, it's different. It's not like he has a microphone and empowered speakers that he can just like talk to them through the microphone, right? No, he's got to shout to the crowd. He's got to raise his voice so the whole crowd can hear him. So Jesus is backed up against the water and he turns around and he sees these two boats there and he sees his buddies, Peter, Andrew, James, John, they're cleaning up their nets. And so he turns to Peter and says, hey, Peter, you think I could use your boat for a few minutes? Think I could use your boat for a few minutes? I, maybe just put some distance between me and the crowd so that I can address everyone? And Peter's like, yeah, of course. Yeah, you're Jesus. Yes, of course, you can use my boat. And so, so Jesus gets into Peter's boat and Peter pushes the boat out just a little ways into the water so Jesus can now speak to the crowd. You ever been at, at a lake? sitting like maybe having a campfire by the lake and you can hear the people on the other side of the lake talking. It's amazing how your voice travels over the water, right? What Jesus is creating here is like a natural amphitheater. The crowds are pressed in on the shore and Jesus is out and his voice is just carrying over the water to the people that are gathered there to hear the word of God. But I think there's another reason why Jesus asked Peter to use his boat Luke doesn't tell us what the message was that day. We don't, we don't know what the sermon was on that day. But I have a suspicion. I have a suspicion that this was a message that Jesus really wanted Peter to hear. This is a message that, that, that he is going to drive home through an illustration in just a few minutes that we're going to read about, right? And so Peter, it's like, okay, so Peter pushes the boat out into the water, and then he kind of like, I'll be the anchor, hold the boat so it doesn't float off, you know. Peter was a captive audience that day. He was there holding the boat probably as Jesus is, is preaching to the people, listening to what Jesus is saying. In verse four, we read, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, 
put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. So Jesus, you know, finishes his message to the crowd. We don't know how long it was. What's typical, what, 35, 45 minutes is a sermon? That's, that's pretty funny. Then the people get bored and they leave, right? So, no. Who knows? It could have been hours. I don't know. But he finishes his message to the crowd and Peter, you know, he turns to Peter and instead of saying, hey, thank you so much for letting me use your boat. Let's go get something to eat. Let's go home. Instead of doing that, he, he turns to, Jesus, uh, to Peter and he says, Peter, let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. Now, that might sound like a reasonable request to you and to me, right? But to Peter, to Peter and to every other fisherman that was on the shore that day, what Jesus was suggesting was absolutely ridiculous. This was a total waste of time, total waste of time. Now, you have to keep in mind that, that Peter was a professional fisherman. This isn't some you know, like a hobby for Peter where he stops by the lake on his way home and, you know, tosses in a line with a worm and a bobber. Like, yeah, maybe I'll just fish before I head home and have to do my chores. No, this is his job. This is his livelihood. And it was a physically demanding job which required large nets and a crew to haul them in. But when it came to fishing, Peter, Peter was an expert. He knew everything there was about catching fish, especially on this particular lake. Peter knew every cove, right? He knew every sweet spot, right? This is where we're gonna catch him tonight, right? He knew every part of the Sea of Galilee. And he knew something else. He knew something else, something that every fisherman on that beach knew. The time to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee was at night. It was at night. Fishing in the daytime was a terrible idea. Peter knew that, that during the day, the fish would retreat into the deeper, cooler parts of the lake. And remember, how deep is that lake? About 150 feet deep, right? And so fishermen knew that if you want to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee, you go out at night when the fish come up from the deep, they come into the shallower waters to feed. Then you go out, you cast your nets, and that's when you catch fish. And so Peter looks at Jesus, right? Jesus says, hey, Message is over. Why don't we, let's go fishing. Let's go out into the deep, he says, and throw down a net. And you know that when Peter hears this, you know that in his mind, he's thinking, Jesus, you are a really good teacher. You, really, honestly, you're probably the best teacher I have ever heard. You're amazing. You're a great teacher. And you know what? Actually, you're probably a really good carpenter too. And uh, I've heard stories about what you and your dad, Joseph, have built over there in Nazareth. I mean, you guys are great carpenters. But with all due respect, I'm a fisherman. I'm a fisherman, and I know a thing or two about catching fish, especially in this lake. So why don't you stick to the teaching? I'll stick to the fishing. This is a terrible, terrible idea. But to his credit, Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing. Sounds like every time I go fishing, actually. So, 
I was just talking with Gene out in the, in the cafe about going out fishing here soon, and apparently he's good at it, which is great because maybe I'll actually catch something next time I go. But Peter says, we, we worked all night. We didn't catch anything. But, you know, addressing Jesus as master was a sign of deep respect and a recognition of Jesus' authority in Peter's life. But you can almost hear the pleading in Peter's voice, right? Master, seriously? We worked all night. We didn't catch a thing. You say, man, Jesus, we are exhausted. We've been up all night fishing. We haven't caught anything. We are, we're, we are physically exhausted, right? But we're actually pretty emotionally exhausted too because we didn't catch anything. This is my livelihood, you know? Not to mention the fact that we just got done cleaning the nets we go out fishing now, I'm going to have to clean the nets again, right? Ugh. But, but, at your word, Master, we will go back out and we will put down the nets. You know, if any other person, if anybody else had come along and told Simon Peter to do what Jesus was asking him to do, you know that Simon Peter would have looked at them and said, you are crazy and you need to get out of here, right? Take a hike. But this wasn't just any person, right? This was Jesus. This is the same one that he had seen casting demons out in the synagogue, right? This is the same one who had turned water into wine. This is the same one who had, had, had healed Peter's mom or mother-in-law in his home. And so Peter says, I'll do it. I'll do it. What an incredible display of obedience. What an incredible act of submission to the authority of Jesus. Peter did what he and everyone else would have seen as foolish. Why? Simply because the Lord told him to do it. Would I do that? Would you? You know, I know that some of you, you are, you are experts in your own right in different areas. I mean, I don't know if we have any professional fishermen here, but I know we have other professionals, right? We've got, we've, got, we've got people who are professors and we've got people who are doctors and we've got people who are plumbers or contractors. Or, listen, you're an expert in some area, right? And Jesus comes along and tells you how to do your line of business. You're kind of like, oh, well, you know. And I think there's a temptation sometimes in our Christian walk to say, well, well, Jesus, you can have this area. When it comes to what I should do spiritually speaking and all that, yeah, yeah you're the boss, Right? When it comes to this area, I'm kind of an expert. Kind of an expert. You know why Peter did this? I'll tell you why Peter did this. Peter did this because he understood something really, really important. No matter who you are, when Jesus comes into your boat, you are no longer the authority. He is. I don't care what you know. When Jesus steps into your boat, he is the authority. And so Peter says, I got to be honest, Jesus, this doesn't make any sense to me, but at your word, I'll do it. I'll do it. And so Peter obeyed the Lord's command. And little did he know, little did he know just how much his life was about to change because of that one faithful step of obedience. In verse six, we read, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. 
That's a lot of fish, right? And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and they filled both the boats so that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish, right? That's a lot of fish. Now, I imagine that as Peter and his companions were tossing the net over the side of the boat for the first time, you know that in his mind, he's kind of thinking, all right, guys, I know this is crazy. We're just going to do it. Jesus said to do it, so we're going to do it. Let's just make Jesus happy, and then we can all go home, right? Let's just do it. And I think, I honestly think that Peter would have been thrilled if they caught anything, right? Yeah, if we caught five or ten fish, that'd be better than what we did the night before, right? But what he experienced was so far beyond anything he could have possibly imagined, right? So many fish that the nets are breaking. None of them had ever seen anything like this. I mean, can you imagine? Can you just imagine the chaos, right, that erupted in the, in the joy as they're hollering to the other boats, like, you guys need to come help. This is crazy. The, the, our nets are breaking. We need help, right? So many fish. Can you imagine the, the shock and the adrenaline as, as, as the other boats are rushing out to help them and they're working hard? And this is hard, back-breaking work, right? And then can you imagine, can you imagine the concern in their eyes as they're looking at the, the fish in the boat and the boat's going, right? And, you, and the water is, is getting closer and closer to going over the side of the boat. What a, what a moment, right? What a moment. What a catch. These fishermen, they had worked all night long following all the best practices and all the proven techniques that they knew as professional fishermen. And they had not caught a thing. But at the word of Jesus, what, at the word of Jesus, what must have felt like every fish in the Sea of Galilee came swimming up from the deep and dove into their nets, Right? In verse 9, we read that Peter and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. See, what they were witnessing was nothing short of an absolute miracle. All they did, all they did was follow Jesus. All they did was obey his word, and Jesus took care of the rest. It was a miraculous display of Jesus' power, his authority, uh, his authority even over the fish of the sea, right? And it was a, a, a miraculous display of his ability to provide for them, to provide for them in ways that they couldn't even provide for themselves. It was an example of his ability to do far more abundantly than all that we could ever ask or think. This was hands down the greatest catch of their lives. It might be the greatest catch that ever took place on the Sea of Galilee, right? Can you picture that scene in your mind? All these fishermen are dirty, sweaty, and they are exhausted from the backbreaking work of hauling in these nets. But at the same time, you know that they had to be grinning from ear to ear as they looked at these fish, which represented something else to them money, right? They're standing in these boats, and they are up to their thighs in fish. By the way, they found in the Sea of Galilee a few years back, they found a boat in the mud when the water level was particularly low. Some current fishermen, modern-day fishermen, saw what looked like some boards sticking up out of the mud. 
they start digging the mud and they find it's a boat. It's a boat that dates to about 40 AD. It's about the same time that this boat was on the water. I don't know if it was these boats or not, but it was a boat that was from that time. Those boats were roughly seven and a half feet wide. They range in size like 20 to 27 feet long and they're about four feet deep, these boats. They can hold about eight to 10 guys in them. And you got to picture these guys are in this boat and they are up to their, to their knees, up to their thighs in fish, right? In, in that boat. And their minds must have been racing. At this point, you would expect that Peter would probably turn to Jesus and say, how would you like a job? You know, like, you, you, you might want to consider joining our crew. You can, be, I'll make you, you, can, you can be majority owner if you want, right? But that's not Peter's response at all. In verse 8, we read, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so, all, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. They were stunned, right? They were stunned. They were amazed. They were blown away. They cannot believe what they have just seen and experienced. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In that moment, Peter's eyes were opened and he realized that this man, Jesus, the, the, the man that is standing in his boat, knee deep in, in fish, was so much more than just a gifted teacher. He was so much more than just a prophet who had healed some people. So much more than, than a guy who had cast out a few demons. Peter realized in that moment that he was standing in the presence of God. Now, I don't know if Peter knew that this is the Son of God yet. I don't know if he fully understood that Jesus was the Messiah yet. All I know is in that moment that Peter understood that I am somehow in the presence of God in this moment. And so Peter did what, what anyone would do when they realize that they are standing in the presence of God. He dropped at Jesus' knees in fear and in worship. Picture that. I mean, you, you got to see this, right? Peter, he is dropped down in a boat full of fish. He drops in humility before Jesus. And he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Oh, Lord. Peter's reaction is, 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 is so much like the reaction that we see in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, the prophet, is given a vision of the Lord on his throne. And Isaiah is, is completely overwhelmed by the power and the holiness of God. So he cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm ruined, other translations say, because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I love how the, um, the New Living Translation translates this. It says, Isaiah cried out, it's all over. I'm doomed for I am a sinful man. It's over. Uh, I'm toast, Right? That'd probably be the message. I'm toast. So, <laughs> brothers and sisters, the closer we get to God, the more aware we become 
of our own sinfulness. That's true. The closer we get to Jesus, the more we become aware of just how unworthy we are to be in his presence. Simon Peter was overcome with an awareness of his own sinfulness. And so he cried out, depart from me, Jesus. I am not worthy to be in your presence. And the truth is, he's right. He's right. None of us are worthy to be in his presence. The only reason, the only reason that we're able to be in the presence of God is because of the incomprehensible love, grace, and mercy of God the Father that he made available to us by sending his son, Jesus, to die in our place. That's the only reason that we can even consider approaching God. We're going to be celebrating that this week, aren't we? That's what it's all about. And it's something worth celebrating. We we didn't stand a chance of ever being able to be in the presence of God except for Jesus. Not because we deserved it. None of us is worthy, but because of His great love. Amen? Amen. One of the greatest prayers, one of the greatest prayers that I think we can pray is that God would open our eyes to truly understand how much we've been forgiven. You know, I think there's a real temptation as the longer we walk with Christ, you see this happen, that people forget. They forget how much grace and mercy and love has been poured out on them. There is no room for self-righteousness in the presence of God, is there? None. I, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you can be growing closer to Jesus and not become more aware of just how much you've been saved from. I don't know if you can. So one of the greatest prayers we can pray is that God would open our eyes to understand just how much we've been saved from. You know, Peter's reaction in the presence of God is, is, is like the reaction of Isaiah 6. Again, woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm ruined. I don't deserve this. How can I possibly be in his presence? The closer we get to Jesus, the more aware we become of how sinful we are. So there is Simon, Right? He's bowing before Jesus. He's, he's, he's knee deep, or actually he's on his face, you know, in this fish at Jesus' knees, feeling completely unworthy to be in his presence. And he's absolutely right. And Jesus could have said, that's right. You are. But in the second half of verse 10, we read that Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you You'll be catching men. As Peter is bowing there in in fear, overwhelmed by everything that's just happened, overwhelmed by the presence of God, Peter and and the rest of these fishermen hear the comforting words of Jesus saying, do not be afraid. And then, and then they heard the words that identified the calling and the plan that Jesus has for their lives. He said, from now on, You're going to be catching men. And the verb that he uses here for catching in the original language literally means catching alive. Catching alive. (laughs) They're used to catching and killing, you know? 
catch the fish, kill it, sell it, right? Jesus says, from now on, you're going to be catching alive men, people. Your days of catching fish are over, Peter. You're going to partner with me to catch people, bringing them from spiritual death into life. Peter has no idea just how wild an adventure that Jesus is calling him to. But it is an adventure that is going to not only change Peter's life, but it's going to change the lives of, of countless others as Peter walks in obedience to Jesus. In the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, one of my favorite stories, we read a story about Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost, right? And he's preaching the good news of forgiveness that's available through Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, we read these words, that after Peter preached, that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. 3,000 souls said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want to receive his forgiveness. I want to be part of the family of God, to be part of God's kingdom. 3,000 souls. And I wonder, I just wonder if in that moment, as Peter is there in Jerusalem, he's preaching, and there's crowds and crowds of people he's preaching, and then afterwards the people say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. 3,000 people. I wonder if Peter's mind flashed back to that day in the boat. As he's surrounded by probably thousands of fish in these boats, and Jesus said, Peter, from now on, you're not going to be catching fish you're going to be catching men. I wonder, I wonder if he remembered that day with Jesus. Verse 11, we read that when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. And the they here, it's not just Peter. You know, Peter is sort of the representative that this story follows but this is James and John and probably Andrew as well. It's been the greatest catch of their lives, right? This is the greatest catch of their lives. And after the greatest catch of their lives, Jesus calls them to leave everything and follow him. And they did. And they did. You know, just think about that for a second. Think about the fact that Jesus might, it's like he didn't call them when they were at their bottom. You know, like, well, I got nothing to lose. Might as well follow Jesus, you know? They, they, they've just had the catch of their lives and Jesus says, now I want you to leave everything and come and follow me. I want you to trust me. Don't worry about it. Obviously, I can take care of you, right? And they did. They did. They walked with Jesus and, and they learned from Jesus they became his, the, the, the Hebrew word is they became his taladim. That's the Hebrew word for disciple, which meant that they followed him. They, they did everything with Jesus because the goal of a taladim is to become like the rabbi, to become like the teacher. And they followed Jesus. And we know from the book of Acts that, that we're told that when they heard Peter talking and, and James, or John rather, they said, these guys have clearly been with Jesus. 
They became like Jesus as they followed him. The book of Acts, we're also told that Jesus used these guys to turn the world upside down, didn't he? And they went around, they were preaching the good news of salvation that is available through Jesus Christ, and they became fishers of men, catching people alive into the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, his disciples, I guess the question that we need to answer is this. What step of obedience is Jesus asking me to take? What's he asking you to take for a step of obedience? And maybe, just maybe, it might be a step of obedience that doesn't make sense to you or to anybody else. He might just say, I want you to go out and throw down your net. And you might think, that is ridiculous, Jesus. But hopefully, like Peter, you'll say, but at your word, I'll do it. I will do it. And I believe that Jesus wants to bring each and every one of us into a deeper relationship with him where we're walking step by step in obedience to his calling and his plan for our life. What step is he calling you to take? And, and, and then once you have identified the step, again, the next question is, will, will you do it? Will you follow him? Because I gotta tell you, there is no greater life than the one that has lived with and for Jesus. Amen? Amen. And if you're here today and you've never made the decision to follow Jesus. Pastor Henry said it earlier. Come on, it's Palm Sunday. The Messiah has come. He came to set you free and to give you life. Make today the day that you cross over and become a Taladim. Become his follower. Give your life to him. Experience the forgiveness for your sins and become not just a fisher of fish, but a fisher of men. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you so much. We thank you so much for, for your calling on our lives. That you've called us into this relationship with you. You've forgiven us for our sins. And if we, like Peter, will just humbly acknowledge that we are sinful, that, you will, that you'll take us by the hand and lift us up, you'll forgive us of our sins. And you call us to become your disciples, to come and follow you. And what a wild ride that will be. You called Peter and Andrew and James and John to leave their nets and, and to, to go to a whole different direction. And you might do that for some of us too, or you might just tell us to go back to the same place that we've been working, but do it differently. You might just call us to be fishers of men. God, I pray that we would say yes. Help us to have the, the, the humility and the submission to your authority to answer yes to you, no matter what you're calling us to. We pray this in the powerful name of your son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.